Now John's words here are, I think, meant to encourage us. And they link back to this rather fascinating, confusing story from the early narrative of Genesis. Brothers. Family in turmoil. You heard a little bit about my family growing up. I had two brothers. I would like to say life was always sweetness and light. We loved each other dearly. We blessed and gave to one another freely. We upheld one above the other, certainly above ourselves. But no, we had unusual tensions. Perhaps not in the I actually shared a bed with my younger brother till I was mid teenage. Can you imagine? It was not a pretty sight at times. <laughs> I older brother, when I started grammar school, he and his friends attempted to baptize me in the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, at 11 years old. <laughs> now, when John talks about brothers and sisters, he's not just talking about our natural siblings, uh, he's talking about the nature of our relationships as the people of God as the manifestation of the body of Christ upon the earth, the family of God. Remember last week, we pondered, as John did, this love that has lavishly been given. How great is the Father's love that he's lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Do you know this love? Do you know this love? Has it touched your heart? And when Jesus tells us, love one another, this is a revolution. This actually sets us at odds, as he says in, the, in his gospel, in John's gospel, but also in, in our passage today. It will set you at odds with the world. In fact, the world may hate you. So fathers, what do we get from our father? Natural fathers, what do we what do we inherit from our fathers? Give me a couple of things. Not very much money. We say things we didn't like from our earthly fathers. Sorry, we get what? We say something we didn't like from our earthly Well, if we got it, yes, let's be honest. Temper. Temper. It's funny sometimes recently I'm talking to people and and we throw things in the conversation. Well, to be honest, and I look and I say, you mean you've not been honest up to me? <laughs> I know it's a figure of speech. Yeah. But let's be honest. Why not? Empire. What else? Habits. 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 Not those cloth things that you wear full length. <laughs> what else? Beliefs. Hobbies. Interests. Beliefs. Beliefs. Mannerisms. 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 Dad, when your kid is saying things to your kids that your dad used to say to you that you said you'd never say to your kids, which you do. Yeah, yeah. It's a little scary, isn't it? Anything else we get? Encouragement. Values. Encouragement. Examples. Quite a challenge being a father, isn't it? You get a name. It indicates that we belong. So much of the Jewish identity, the identity of the people of God is rooted in son of, son of, son of, understanding the lineage, the fathers that have passed down. 
it's hugely significant in this family. Sadly, in our Western culture, we, we know little of that, and we're losing much of what we have. Paul seems to suggest that there are two categories of people upon the earth. Sobering. We are either a child of God or a child of the devil. That's how he puts it. It's quite stark in that sense. And the way we know is reflected, he says, in the way we believe our behavior, how we act, the mannerisms and the habits that people experience from us. And the invitation is, if we're children of God, then the sign of that would be acts of righteousness. Fundamentally summed up in the commandment, love one another. To be in right relationship, to be good. In fact, summed up from the beginning in the commandments, to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. When we live like that, we demonstrate that we are indeed children of God, John says. Now he throws in this reference to this angel story that I have from Genesis chapter 4. We have two brothers here. We have Cain and Abel. Cain was a farmer of the land. He grew crops, Abel, and livestock. So when we think about crops and livestock, that's the essence of Genesis 1 of what is given to us. Produce from the field and animals. And so here we've got Cain and Abel, children of Adam and Eve, overseeing and stewarding God's creation, the plants and the animals. Now, some of the astute among you will know that Genesis 4 comes after Genesis 3. <laughs> in Genesis 3, we have this disruption in the universe, this breaking of connection between God and man through rebellion and a resistance to the ways of God and a yielding to the devil. In Genesis 4, the disruption between man and man, brother against brother. The very commandments were called to, to love God and to love our neighbor get broken so early in the book. It is grievous. It's a departure from righteousness, right relatedness. When it says that Cain murders his brother, the language is far more graphic than that in the original. He butchered him. He slit his throat and his blood bled into the ground. Brother against brother. Anger fueled by religion. And this fracturing relationship between brothers. And this is the very design an end goal of the enemy, the devil, our enemy, the disruptor of relationships, because he's a murderer, as Jesus says from the beginning. But he doesn't just want to disrupt our fellowship with one another, he wants to disrupt our sense of communion with, fellowship with Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's where John begins his letter, for our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. 
This is why we love the name of Jesus. But this disruption sadly gets played out throughout the pages of Old and New Testament. In families, tribes, nations, even the great King David has his son initiating a coup against himself and his brothers. And it leads to his death. A violent death. The great King David. And this is why the theme throughout the Old Testament scriptures of unity is so vital, even though it seemed so elusive to the people of Israel. Then they did get a generation or two generations away from David, and northern kingdom is fighting against southern kingdom. Tribe against tribe, brother against brother. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like the precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard. For there the Lord bestows the blessing, his blessing, even life forevermore. That's the cry of the psalmist. Even though it was elusive, nevertheless, it's the heart cry of the father for his children. It always has been, and it always will be. I love how even, even in Genesis 3 and Genesis 4, though there's disruption, there's promise of something new. There's judgment. God speaks to Cain, when you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. A pretty damning judgment. And yet, but the Lord said to him, anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. Even in the midst of that is the father's desire to protect his son. Don't you love that? Don't you thankful for that? Mm -hmm. But nothing shall separate us from the love of God. Amen. Back in the 90s, uh, I've been part of a fellowship in a place called Derby in the Midlands. Remember March for Jesus? Yeah. Some of you participated in that? Yeah. Yeah. A lot of that was about, obviously, the church getting out on the streets, but the church together. Greg Hendrick, who was a kind of a key songwriter into that movement, marched north and south and east and west in, in England, in the UK. And he crossed pretty much in Derby. That's where I was living. That's where our church was. And uh, kind of the center of the country, called the East Midlands. It's the middle. And um, back in the mid-90s, we had a mission where we invite church and we invite evangelists to come and speak. And um, it, was, it was a wonderful time, but it, it didn't really bear a lot of fruit in terms of conversion. And there was myself, and I was uh, an associate and a Another young guy, a good friend of mine, Lalit. He's Welsh, but love him anyway. <laughs> and, um, you know, our hearts were just kind of broken over what had happened and yearning for something more. And as we've read, we've been touched by a, a message coming out of Argentina, a man called Ed Silvos, who um, wrote a book that none would perish. And it was really all around this theme of unity. 
not just unity actually in the church, but in the city. But as the city came together under the banner of Christ, as we sought for unity in commerce and government and healthcare and every area of the city, fueled by the message of the gospel and the church leading the charge, that there the Lord bestows his blessing. And uh, we had a vision for the city, one church proclaiming and demonstrating the kingdom of heaven in God. It's still going, it's still happening. I lived there in 99. And it's encouraging to see that because the church together in unity is so foundational because it's ultimately about the oneness of God. We cannot have communion with our God and believe it's okay to be in dispute with our brothers and sisters. John says we're deceived and the truth is not in us. But it's hard. And it's always been hard. But Jesus is the faithful son who goes to battle for your and my sake, as we've discussed. He goes to battle against the forces of the enemy that we want to disrupt and destroy. Remember, we looked at that last week. The reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. What is the devil's work? Relationships, disruption, division. Disconnect. But Jesus came to do battle with that and to model something different from the Father. Just like we said, he had habits. He had values. They came from the Father, his Father in heaven. It's the values of the kingdom of heaven. And what he gives to us, just as in a way God was giving a, a foresight of this, even to Cain, was righteousness. You see, we, we can't be good enough. We can't get it all right. It's a gift to be received with thanksgiving. If you want to give thanks for anything, this weekend, give thanks for God's indescribable gift of his son and his righteousness to us, which means restored relationship with the Father, love unbounded, but also with it, the new commandment, an example of how we are to reflect the nature of our Father by loving one another through thick and thin. And God does not remove us from the battle. He just equips us with his love. It's amazing. Because it's so risky, isn't it? Risky to hang out with people. Especially broken people. You know, there's an incident where Jesus is modeling some of this love of his disciples, and it's coming close to his crucifixion. And one of his best buds, Peter, one of his closest, one in whom he'd invested the most of himself and his love, the one who would ultimately betray him and deny him, through denial. He says, Simon, which is his other name, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. It's kind of a nice thing to hear, isn't it? Yeah. Wouldn't you like to hear that as you wake up one morning? <laughs> Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. But he doesn't stop there. He says, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. I 
telling you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. But you even know me. He knew what was coming, but he still prayed for him. Does that mean Jesus' prayers failed? No, we don't know what he prayed for, do we? <laughs> what is he praying for you? Do you know the Lord is praying for you? And sometimes we want to be out the battle and in heaven, don't we? It's natural that we would want to be with him. But he's got us here for a reason. That our faith may not fail. That we would continue to trust the goodness of God in the midst of the onslaught of the enemy. And you shouldn't need convincing that there are forces at work in our world to divide and disrupt relationships marriages, families, communities, businesses, the political route. I mean, pick an area and of the increase of violence we've seen no end. We've got threats of militias emerging south of the border if things don't go their way. The battle is real. We don't know where it will take us. But that's not our focus. I hope it's not your focus, and it's not your destiny either. The devil is not creative. He uses the same old techniques as he started back in Genesis 3, so he continues to do the same for us today. But God wants to encourage us. I want you to be encouraged. I want you to be so in love with the Lord, so recognizing that he's for you and he's with you in the midst of the battle. In the midst of your struggle and your imperfections, remember your righteousness is a gift. You're clothed with Him. It's done. But you're in the battle. And that sets you against the world under the control of the enemy. That sets you against the enemy. It's meant to. We're not meant to walk in His ways. We're meant to walk in the Father's ways. By the grace the Father gives. But what does the enemy do? Well, he is a deceiver. He's a liar. He's the father of lies. Every lie that you can ever imagine you believe, it came from him. It's not one of the good and perfect gifts that comes from our true father. But nevertheless, we fall for it, sadly. There is no truth in him. He masquerades as an angel of light. He betrays. He deceives us so that we would walk in fear and aloneness, thinking we are alone when we're not. He causes us to feel shame, to isolate ourselves, to believe we're no good when God has said, you are righteous. It doesn't get any gooder. It doesn't. You can't be any better in the eyes of your Father in heaven because it's based upon Jesus' goodness. It's a gift. But we fall for the lie. And it takes us out. I mentioned recently about being embezzled by a friend out of a significant amount of money. And it was a difficult, hard time for us and the pressure they put us under. And just a litany of lies and deception to hide what he'd done until eventually it came out which we could as well. Men, you need a good accountability partner. And if you're married, it's the best. But 
Let me just, as, we, as I look back, I just see the hand of the enemy on this child of God. Don't think you can't fall prey to them. Pursue light and truth. Walk in the truth. Walk in the light. So as well as deceit, he uses our desires. He uses our God-given desires. God created you with healthy desires. But remember, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, will take us away from the desires that are submitted to and lived out for the glory of God, that I would live them for the glory of Mike, for my pleasure, for my joy, for my delight. It's not that God doesn't want you to have joy and delight. Of course he does. But there's an order and a way that we do that. And the enemy comes in and he suggests, you deserve this. Take a break from that church stuff, that righteous stuff. Let go a little bit and live. Looks enticing. And he sows the weeds among the weeds. To suck the life of God from us. And we become numb to godly desires that are in us. Because God created them, it is in his image to live, desiring him and living for him and bearing his glory. And they need to be awakened. Yeah, I was 25 when I really became Christian and had a genuine, tangible, conversion experience when I turned knowing little other than how much I needed God. And my appetite changed. My desire for things changed. You know, I've hardly read a book. Some people think I'm an academic. I'm not really, but I do like to read. And I just had a voracious appetite for the scriptures. I could, I could never read the scriptures before. I tried because I was dating a girl who wanted me to, and wanted me to know God, and I, I tried for her. But they, they were just dry and dusty. Now I couldn't get enough. Prayer, worship, being with God's people. These are godly desires. They reflect our identity as the children of God and the family of God together. But the enemies, he distracts us from these things. He pulls us away from the things that give us life. Third day, he's out to destroy you. His purpose is destruction and death. But he's also a murderer. I was reading this morning the cry of Jesus, so Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. That's the people of God, that's the church. But that's the enemy, you see. We still do it. Peter picks up on this idea of the enemy being like a, a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. It comes from a prophecy in Jeremiah, actually, where there's a word of judgment, and he speaks in the language of the lion coming out and destroying the people of God. Peter takes that imagery, but it's a reflection of the nature of the enemy. He is so bent on your and my destruction. But don't be afraid. The greater is he that is in you. Mm -hmm. right. If 
that we're protected, not in the flesh, but in him. I was reminded recently of, um, you're old enough to remember the Carpenters, Richard and Karen Carpenter. Yeah. <laughs> the gal who had everything in terms of ability, fame, money, wrestling with anorexia, self-harm, self-hatred, takes her life, 32. That's how bent on destruction the enemy is. And it's so sad to see. And we must be alert to these things. We must be awake, aware of the devil's wiles, his ways, his methods. And he uses conflict. Now, conflict is inevitable, people. If you're around people for any period of time, there'll be a degree of conflict in the sense of we'll kind of hurt one another because we're not perfect. That's not the issue. It's what we do with the conflict that's the issue. Jesus warns us about this in the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. That's pretty stark, isn't it? How much more so when it's done in the name of religion? Lord have mercy. John says anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And we know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. You see, it's inconsistent with the Son as a reflection of the Father. And if we're in him, we, we can't live like that. We don't want to live like that. There's another power at work within us that we're meant to yield to and surrender to. It's why life is found in surrender, not in control. It's those who give up their life. See, too much control. Stoking the fires of conflict rather than humility and surrender, ministering reconciliation. We are meant to be an outpost of heaven. Because they were like a Roman outpost in the empire, reflecting the, the values of the empire. We reflect the values of the kingdom of God. And the supreme value of that is reconciliation, making peace. But the very commitment to that means we will come up against warfare. Because the world hates that. The world wants to fight. And we are called to forgive. We are not called to be vengeful, to be those who isolate and defend themselves. So though conflict is inevitable, reconciliation and healing is a choice we all have to make. But it's the way of the Father. It's what defines us as children of God. Otherwise, we're acting in the spirit of the evil one. John said, Paul says, Jesus said. And it's grace, it's all given to us. And we're to protect one another. We're to help one another. We're to remind one another that God 
fights for us and not against us. And it's as we yield to him, as we surrender to him and to the spirit of work within us. Remember, he's committed to forming Christ in us. It's a work that's been set in motion, and we're simply to surrender and submit to it. So, may we grow in this ministry of reconciliation. When the world doesn't know how to resolve conflict and problems, it should come to the church to find out. Because it's only in Christ. It's only through the cross. The place of victory. The place of public spectacle of the powers of the enemy. It's the place of victory. It's the place where the perfect, sinless, righteous Son of God took sin and bore it in his body. He who knew no sin became sin for us, such that in him we might become the very righteousness of God. Spend a little time at our tables. Pray, that's okay. Pray for this message of reconciliation. You know, we have good news to share with. It comes out of our identity as people of God. As a reconciling, loving, grace-giving. Let's pray for the Lord's empowering, anointing, that doors will be open. If there's a need that you have today, if there's something that God has spoken to you that you want to put right, that you want to bring into alignment with the kingdom of heaven, invite the others at your table to pray with you for that. <laughs> to trust that God is praying with you, Jesus before the Father. <coughs> We see that promise, okay? So let's spend a few moments and then I'll come up and uh, introduce our testimony.